welcome guys and gals to the Man Talk Show. I'm Connor Beaton. And today's episode is a special episode. It's an anonymous client, um, not actually one of my clients, uh, but an anonymous, anonymous man that has uh, signed up to have a session and, and talk live about his life. I'm going to be doing more of these because I've had a lot of people reach out saying how powerful and impactful they are to have an inside look into men's lives and men's thoughts and how how we think, how we process things. So um, this is going to be all about, uh, as you read in the title, a father's rage. And so this individual grew, grew up in a household dominated and, and controlled uh, by a father with very strict routines and... Um, and a father that needed to have control in every sense of the word and the impact that that has had on him, but also growing up in an environment where people didn't talk about things. Um, that I've heard countless times from people that grew up with parents from the old school generation that learned and passed down this lineage of, of not talking about uh, challenges and obstacles, but also not talking about feelings, not talking about um, the things that we are going through in our life on the everyday basis and being able to move through it. And because of that, many men feel like they lacked mentorship and guidance and direction from their father. And that is a that is a story that I hear from a lot of men. And so in this conversation, we talk about the impact of that of, of on this man from growing up in a household where there was a lot of rage, a lot of anger and yelling and screaming and you know getting hit when you got things wrong. And how that shaped him as an individual, and what I would love for you to listen to through through this lens, uh, obviously through a lens of compassion. But what I would love for you to listen to, if that resonates with you, is the impact that this has had on on this person, and to see how that might be similar or dissimilar to yourself, uh, and and really being able to see yourself through this individual. So we talk a little bit about control, and we talk about how that can block intimacy. Uh, and a whole slew of other things. So this is a really phenomenal conversation uh, that I hope that you share with someone uh, who may have had a similar upbringing, but maybe just someone that is interested in these types of conversations and is wanting to go deeper. So uh, before I bring my anonymous guest on, I just want to remind everyone out there uh, to head on over to the Man Talks Community Facebook group. Check that out. Uh, if you're wanting to go deeper and you want to do some some one-on-one work with me, you can either apply online or you can join uh, the Alliance, which is a very powerful group that meets weekly. Uh, it's led by myself and Trevor Bohm, and we dive into some incredible conversations about purpose, about um, health and fitness, mindset, wellness, uh, sex, and relationships. We talk extensively about, uh, and you get some one-on-one time with us on a weekly basis, but also you get an incredible community of men that are doing the work alongside you and they are, they are great. They're making some incredible progress. So uh, head on over to mantalks.com and check that out. And don't forget to sign up to our, uh, our, our email. And if you want to stay up to date for some of the live events that we have coming up uh, for some of the um, uh, video series that we have launched out, question the rules, uh, but also for the book, I have been, behind the scenes, diligently working on a book. And I've had a lot of you men and women reach out asking for me to write a book. And so I finally decided to do so. And the book is almost complete. It is called uh, Understanding the Shadow of Men. That title might change by the time it comes out. Uh, but really, it is all about how our shadow blocks us 
from having the type of uh, sex life that we want, how it gets in the way from us being able to commit in relationships, how it gets in the way from us being able to find, refine and define our purpose in life. And uh, it goes into a few different areas around mindset, the inner critic, uh, how we can level up our mindset and, and become more powerful, how we embody a deeper sense of leadership and ownership in our life and create a more powerful direction for ourselves, our business, our families, uh, and our communities at large. And so it is going to be great. And uh, I'll be sending out a little bit, some small snippets from the book and, and sharing it online uh, on Instagram so you can get a, a sense of what it's going to be all about. Uh, and the subtitle right now is a book written for men designed to answer the questions of women. And so this book will hopefully shed some light for the female readers out there on the psyche of men and, and how it is that we, why we think the way that we think and, you know, how we communicate, how we listen, what we desire, what we crave, how we, uh, you know, how we sabotage our life. Um, but the book is written directly to men. So it's, it's going to be a, a fairly powerful book and uh, is fully endorsed by my wife <laughs> already, which is, which is great. I've been getting her to read through and, and help me because while I have the concepts, sometimes I uh, am lacking in the grammar department. That is not my, my strength. <laughs> so anyway, uh, thank you so much for tuning in today's episode. I hope you enjoy uh, this very real and open conversation. And without any further delay, please welcome my anonymous guest. All right, my anonymous guest, how are you doing today? Welcome. Thank you. Um, you know, doing, uh, at least so far, doing okay. We'll see how the conversation goes. <laughs> <laughs> I know before we jumped on, you said you're you're a little nervous. And, uh, you know, I think that is quite normal. I, I can imagine that everyone that's listening is like, yeah, if I was on a call like this, I would feel a little nervous as well. So <laughs> it's totally... Totally normal, but maybe uh, give me give me a little bit of a sense of of where you're at right now, and and maybe why you applied for this call specifically. Well, uh, the biggest reason I had applied for this call is I am uh, I'm currently separated uh, from my wife. I've been divorced once before, and what I'm finding now through this this year or so of separation is that as I go back through my journaling and, and think about things that had happened and as I'm trying to move forward, I'm realizing that I did not do, personally did not do a very good job of recognizing or listening to other people when my mental health was failing, uh, going through bouts of depression and anxiety and such. And I'm still trying to work through that and I'm struggling working through that, have these moments of clarity where it's like... I read something in my journal and go, oh my God, what was I thinking? And that's immediately followed by, oh, if you'd had this conversation four or five years ago, you wouldn't be where you are right now. So yeah, that's that's the biggest reason I had applied was just to to help understand those moments of clarity are good things, but that and there will be some negative self-talk afterwards, but how do I get myself out of that? Because I tend to, I tend to dwell in there a little, probably a little too long than is healthy. Yeah. So, so, so just for, for my clarification, so part of the reason why you're wanting to have this call is to just better understand the, the negative self-talk and how to start to move through that when it comes up so that you don't linger in it for too long. Is that roughly accurate? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. Great. I, you know, I think, I think that's such a common thing. You know, a lot of the guys that I work with, there's a good amount of negative self-talk chatter, you know, the inner critic is sort of running rampant, um, or it's just ruminating thoughts. You know, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of thoughts that are sort of happening on this cycle where, you know, something perceivably negative happens in their life, whether there's a struggle in the relationship or something's happening sexually or, or within their business. And all of a sudden, you know, the inner critic pops up and it starts to go in on them and they can't really break free from that cycle. And it can lead to, you know, it can lead to some, some dark places, you know, some challenging times. Mm -hmm. So we can definitely dig into that. Let me give you some context for, um, you know, you mentioned that you were, you were married before. And, um, and so this is your, your second marriage. I'd love to hear just a, a quick little snippet of what happened at the end of your, or your last marriage and why you think that it, um, that it ended. Well, without going into the really gory details, there were, um, the quick and dirty version is, is that I had a child from my, my first marriage when he was 14, his mom had kicked him out of her house. We had joint custody at the time. At the same time, my second wife and I had just had a, a, a baby boy. And so there was that interpersonal dynamic that, that wasn't really, wasn't as, as fluid as it could have been. The communication wasn't as, as good as it could have been. My second wife uh, had a serious um, life-threatening illness. And while that was treated and she survived, um, it was hard on it was hard on everybody. And there were there were options for me to to take therapy and, and get some counseling on that caregiver role that I never took anybody up on. And over time it just we both just kind of we both just kind of wore out. Mm. I can't really, I, I can't really come up with a better way to explain it. Uh, the older boy, when he finished high school, he got moved back to his mom's because it just the, this that situation was becoming untenable. But the the not having the communication, um, I struggled in in letting go of the caregiver role, even though. My second wife was getting healthier and getting stronger and wanted to take more stuff on. I wasn't letting her. Mm. I was, I was still trying to do everything. I was still in the caregiver role and that really chafed on her because she's a very strong and very independent woman, which is what drew me to her in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, but then I didn't let her reestablish that. How come? that's part of what I've been trying to work through. I just, in some of the counseling that I have had, um, it's it, that caregiver role, that, that idea that, okay, she's sick. I need to take care of her. I need to run the house. I need to do all this stuff. And as she got healthier, uh, and stronger and wanted to take, like was trying to do more. I couldn't get rid of this image that she was still sick. Hmm. What and was, I mean, she, what sorry. was the fear? What was the fear there? What was the worry about her illness? Well, I think part of it is is, is she tends to, she tended to push herself too hard when she had had the when she had had the 
the baby, she had to have a C-section and was told three to four weeks, no heavy lifting. And that includes the child, no heavy lifting. Mm -hmm. And I stayed home for a couple of weeks. She had friends come over to, to help, to help out while she healed. And she decided that, oh, I feel fine. And she went and picked the little guy up in the car seat, went to put him in the, in the vehicle to go visit, uh, visit one of her family members and injured herself. Mm. And she had done that a couple of times where not just with the C-section, but was overdoing things um, and, and was getting hurt. And so I, I had this, this image fixed in my head that, well, she always overdoes it. She's always going to get hurt, not recognizing that she had learned from that. It wasn't doing it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So there was, so there was a little bit of, of feeling like, you know, it, it almost sounds like you felt like you maybe you weren't able to trust her fully in the way that you wanted to because of the circumstances and the illness. Is that, is that roughly accurate? Yeah. I, you know, whenever she said she was feeling fine, I always looked at her askew. Mm. Like just kind of, are you sure? I didn't, I didn't believe her, you know, and, and like you said, the, the trust, the trust that should have been there maybe wasn't there as much as it should have been. Okay. And in your first marriage, just to kind of go back to that one, was there a similar, um, a similar lack of trust or worry that you couldn't trust your, your partner fully? Um, no, I don't think it was lack of trust. I think with the first one, it was, we were at two very different stages in our lives and there was a uh, almost no communication as to how we were going to work together on that going forward. My first wife is more than a decade older than me. Mm. Um, and she had three, three children from her pre her previous marriage who were all significantly older than, uh, than our child. Uh, and, and we were together, both relationships lasted about 10 years. But the first relationship, I looking back on it, you could put down squarely as abysmal communication. It wasn't even poor. It, we just didn't talk about much of anything. We'd go to work, we'd come home, you know, take whatever kids to to activities and and go to bed and do the same thing the next day. Mm, we okay. didn't we didn't have time to ourselves. We didn't we didn't make time for ourselves. And just the the fact that there was no communication really really did us in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's you know it's a very common thing, especially when there's when there's kids involved, the communication starts to erode and the relationship shifts. And you know, people go through this huge transition of of welcoming a child into the relationship and and what was working before, even though it may not have been fully functional and may not have been fully connective and intimate in the way that you wanted, but what was maintaining the status quo before suddenly uh, doesn't work, right? Because when when a child comes in, as you know, <laughs> there's a heightened need for communication. There's a heightened need to prioritize things like intimacy. And, and and communicating boundaries and communicating expectations because when those things aren't there then resentment starts to build you know and and anger and frustration starts to build so you know maybe if you can 
just briefly, can you elaborate on uh, what that looked like in your first marriage and and how maybe com- communication broke down in your second marriage? Well, in the first marriage, um, yeah, my um, my wife was was an accountant, and like I said, she's she's significantly older than me, and was really focusing on retirement, and she had a goal of wanting to buy. Uh, one or maybe two income properties so that when the retirement day hit, there would be an additional stream of income. At that time, I was just starting my career. So I was not anywhere near as financially stable as she was. Mm-hmm. And so things like she wanted to pay our mortgage off faster, which is great but I didn't have the financial wherewithal to maintain that accelerated rate. Mm -hmm. But rather than talk to her and say, Hey, I can't do this. Here's where I'm at right now. Here's my budget because we didn't have a joint account. We kept everything. uh, We kept everything separate. Mm -hmm. And I had said, and I never said, look, I can't manage this. Here's where I'm at. Here's how much I'm making. Here's where my current here's my current bill load for for debt repayment and such. Like I can we can we slow this down a little bit? Never never said a word. Just oh okay yeah that sounds like a really good idea. Um, and started getting crippled financially, mm-hmm. um, but never talked about it. And then when uh, when our child came along. And then you've got daycare and you've got all those other things that, you know, all working parents have. Um, it just, the, the expenses got to be too much. And that's like you had said earlier, you know, there's, there's resentment and that sort of thing. And I would lash out, you know, and be frustrated that I couldn't get whatever done, but I'd never talked to her. She had no idea how, how, tight things were for me and i suspect that if i did have those conversations with her we would have been able to come to a solution that worked for both of us that would have accelerated the mortgage payments a little bit but that i didn't feel like i was being put through the ringer every two weeks yeah yeah okay well let's let's dig into that a little bit more because i think that there's some important you know, maybe important stuff in there. So, uh, so I'm just going to ask you, you know, a few questions. They're they're just going to be incomplete sentences in first person, and you just get to answer. You know, what whatever comes forward for you. So, um, so when I wasn't able to support my wife in that way, how I felt was incomplete. I, I felt I felt like I wasn't holding up my end of the bargain, mm. and not not being able to do that felt oh horribly frustrating. I grew up in an Italian household where the man went to work and the, you know, the mom stayed home. And, uh, in my first marriage, my wife made significantly more than me. And that was very, very hard to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was challenging to deal with because, because it, it, it flew in the face of what I had been taught growing up that was... the, the man, the man is the breadwinner. Yeah. And so because of that, I felt like I was, I was inadequate. I I wasn't contributing what I was supposed to. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, 
And I didn't want to talk to her about it because I felt ashamed that I couldn't, uh, I, I couldn't fulfill what I was in air quotes supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if that, if that shame had a voice, what it would say is, if that shame had a voice, what it would say is, is why were you thinking that? <laughs> Mm. you're in this together why are you thinking this yeah and shame in my body feels like <sighs> exhaustion mm. and where i feel it the most is in my head mm. mm-hmm. yeah does it feel heavy yeah constantly tired constantly uh trying to think through fog yeah and what it's what my shame is usually trying to communicate to me is that I there's a conversation that needs to be had because I can't the situation I'm in isn't sustainable anymore. Yeah, but instead of having that conversation, I held on to the shame because I was afraid of having the conversation because it meant that I was weaker than a, a man was supposed to be. Yeah, bingo. Okay. Yeah, and and so how do you feel like that? carried forward after the divorce or after after you parted ways well part of it was is i still never really i didn't take any counseling between marriages and there was about a three year uh, three years between the end of my first marriage and 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 the second one i never went to counseling i never dealt with that piece of dealing with difficult conversations and and how to how to have them Mm. i basically just kind of withdrew from the world for a couple of years and yeah i never really i never i never addressed that that issue not not in any meaningful way yeah, you know, I, th- I think you're bringing up something that's really important, and and I just want to label this right now because I think this is important for a lot of people to hear, but I also think it's important for you to hear. And so, you know, you can sort of see and and maybe hear a little bit more clearly how the the not you know the avoidance of those conversations that you know that you needed to have um, that you you know in hindsight now obviously because hindsight's twenty twenty and we can only connect the dots backwards, but you can see how not having those conversations led to, you know, a, a pretty immense amount of shame, but you can also see how that, that shame over time, and this is a very common thing, can lead to what's referred to as covert depression. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, there's a few different types of depression. And for some men, they'll, ex- they'll experience and sort of exude a, an overt depression where they're, they're, their depression is very outward. And so they might be explosive. They might, you know, drink a lot. They, um, you know, they'll become extremely reactive and combative and, uh, you know, attacking with their partner. And usually this is an outward form of, Hey, I'm hurting internally. I don't know how to talk about it. So I'm going to project it out in the hopes that maybe, maybe this action and this, and this reactive, this reactivity will cause someone to come and save me from myself. And it usually doesn't work very well, right? Because it usually pushes people even further away. And we mm-hmm. become 
you know, we start to spiral more and more. What I see the majority of men struggling with, because that one's pretty apparent, right? We can see that someone's hurting. But what I see a lot of men struggling with is this covert depression where they haven't talked about things and uh, and, and they don't open up and they sort of bottle things up. And then the, you know, the, the shame or the guilt, the failure, the weight of all those emotions gets gets sort of captured internally. And you can see how over time it sort of pulls you down into this, you know, into this darker place. And I think one of the things that you mentioned before was, you know, I, I didn't have these conversations and I'll kind of go through these moments of having this clarity. And when I have this clarity, usually after that, it leads to, you know, this, this, um, how did you put it after you have clarity? What did, what did you say? It's almost like self berating. It's, it's really a lot of negative self-talk that, oh my God, why didn't you see this? Why didn't you see this at the time? Why didn't you see this five years ago or what have you? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so it's what happens there is that the inner critic becomes even more prominent and even louder than it, than it was before. And, and the covert depression that's sort of been lingering in the background and, and maybe causing you to feel a little bit you know, down or heavy or lethargic, lacking energy, you know, maybe a little bit self-critical now kicks into, into high gear because all of a sudden you've had clarity as to why you didn't have those conversations. And, and then the, and then the, you know, whether you want to call it depression or, or the inner critic really sets in. And this is a, this is a very common thing. And it's a very normal thing because what's happening there is that part of our psyche is, is trying to tell us what we should have done, but then mm-hmm. it's also using that lack of action uh, as a as a weapon against us. And this is the trick of the shadow, right? This is the trick of the shadow. It it uses our inaction, it uses our avoidance, and it uses our um, lack of of doing the things that we know we need to do, whether it's conversations or or, or what have you as a means of weighing us down even further. And so usually, you know, when, when we are uh, in these covert depression states, when we do have these popcorn moments of clarity and suddenly we realize, you know, how we've been acting and, and the impact of our actions, it's usually followed by an even heavier weight, uh, especially if we're not taking the action that we need to in those moments because we've realized the sort of gravity or the, the the weight of our impact. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Let's just do a little bit more exploring to see where that, that patterns come from. So mm-hmm. yeah, let's just explore this. So, so my father was overbearing and he was overbearing because that's the way he was brought up too. Yeah. And he was overbearing with, Oh gosh, with everything, our behavior, um, what we, how quickly we ate, um, you know, putting our toys away properly, like just everything Mm. for him. Control was, it was everything. He had to be in control of absolutely everything. And when he wasn't in control, he would, Oh gosh. Um, he would be angry. Mm-hmm. And his anger was very apparent. His his temper was very was very vocal and uh, at times very physical. Mm. So when he was angry, how he showed me that anger was 
Oh, he would, he would spank us. He would scream at us. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And as a kid that felt, Oh gosh, that was, that was terrifying. I ran away from home on a number of occasions. How come? I was scared. I was tired of getting hit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I wanted from him as a kid was <laughs> something other than screaming, anything, yeah. anything other than being screamed at. I was the oldest of three and I bore the brunt of everything. If one of my brothers did something, I'm the one that took it mm. because I didn't want them to take it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so being their protector felt <sighs> that was hard. That was really hard. How come? Well, the youngest one saw what was going on when he got a little older and he tried to help out. The middle one saw what was going on and realized he could get away with a lot more because dad would just come yell at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the middle one and I are only about a year and a half apart. And he and I had some fairly legendary dust-ups. Okay, meaning? Oh, gosh. Um, the only thing missing was the, was the rings and Michael Buffer making his announcement. <laughs> so there was, there was some good arguments and skirmishes between you and him. Yeah, both of us have had our noses broken multiple times. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. And how did, how did your parents uh, deal with that when, when those things would happen? Well, basically, Dad would just yell at us. Mom, Mom didn't say a whole bunch. And after time, we got kind of used to Dad yelling at us. It's when he got physical that we really got scared. When Mom got mad, that's when we got nervous because we weren't sure what she was going to do if she got mad. Because it just never happened very often. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay, and how did your how did your brothers respond or react to your father's anger? Well, like I said, the young the youngest one didn't like it. He he tended to try and avoid it as well. The middle one didn't seem as concerned, but I think part of that was because I had borne the brunt of it for so long that he never really he never really had to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so he just got to kind of sit by the sit by the sidelines, watch, see the punishment unfold, and and the and the chaos along with it. Pretty much, my parents were really young when I was born. When I was born, my mom was eighteen and my dad was nineteen, mm -hmm. and so they had no idea what they were doing. I mean, like most parents, you kind of don't really know what you're doing until the child gets there. So yeah, I mean that. Uh, I don't, I can't even fathom what those really early years were like when, when they had two of us that were three and under, because this would have been the mid seventies oil prices were starting to crash. My dad worked as a mechanic in the oil industry. And so, you know, and that's when interest rates were starting to climb. And yeah, I mean, but as we got older, uh, it, it seemed like it didn't seem like it took much to set him off. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And because of that, what I learned was I learned to avoid having any form of conversation that would cause any level of emotional response. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't want to get hit anymore. Yeah. 
Yeah, because having uh, the the what was the what was the impact of conflict in your household for you for you personally? Oh, I got beaten. Mm-hmm. I, I I'd get smacked across. I get smacked across the head. I get hit with his belt. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it, that that impact that impact left marks. So how that's translated into my marriages? I, I really I go to extremes in some cases to not have those kinds of conversations. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I'm, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say how how my mother dealt with conflict was. She dealt with it very quietly. My parents are still married, and they're closing in on on fifty years, which I I still baffles me in some ways. Um, but if mom wasn't happy with something that we did, she would talk to us. And so when mom, got, I think that's why when mom got really angry, we got we were scared. Because she never got angry. Mom and dad fought a lot, usually over money and, and that sort of thing. But yeah, she never she never really got mad at she never really got mad at us. Mm-hmm. Um, she would try to talk to us, but yeah, dad was dad was the disciplinarian in the house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what I learned about a woman's anger is <sighs> it's very subtle. It can be very subtle and it can be very quiet. And if you aren't listening to what's being said, you're going to miss it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what my father taught me about being a man is you're angry. That <laughs> okay. um, you're angry and and that everything needs to be done your way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that a man's anger is. Okay. Yeah, and also painful. Mm. Very painful. Yeah, it hurt it hurts others, right? So you can see how the environment that you grew up in taught you that a man's anger hurts other people. So how mm-hmm. so how I tried to suppress my anger growing up was um I um I dove into books. I I could read very well, and so I tried to keep my grades up. I threw myself into any athletic competitions that I could, uh, because, in all honesty, it got me out of the house, and it got me away from it. All right, and then how did that translate when you moved out of the house and you started dating and you, uh, whatever happened after after high school and moving out? When I first when I first moved out and, and started going to school and that it was it was a relief in some ways that I could make a mistake and I wasn't gonna get, you know, I wasn't gonna get hit. Mm-hmm. The problem was is I really had no I did not have a healthy way to deal with conflict with other people. <laughs> Even something simple like living in residence and and uh, you know, trying to figure out you know, who was, whose turn was it to do what chore, mm. you know, like simple things like that. I really struggled to, to just kind of roll with things. It's like, you have to have a structure. You have to do this and you have to do this. And everybody else is like, what's the big deal, man. <laughs> you know, they'll just chip in. Yeah. So, so yeah, yeah so that was tough. That was really, that was an eye opening experience for me. 
Mm-hmm. And I needed I needed structure because, in all honesty, I needed the structure because that's all I knew. That's all I knew. Okay. Even my even my friends that lived around me, most of their dads worked at the um, the penitentiary, or they worked for an oil and gas company where uh, schedules and <clears throat> excuse me and structure and maintenance and all this stuff all had to happen at a precise moment. I can't think of as as this conversation has been going on in this this last question. I can't think of a friend of mine growing up that just rolled with things. Everybody was on some had some kind of scheduled, structured life. How did that show up with with you and your household? Oh, the exact same thing. We had to have meals at a certain time. We did laundry on a particular day. We did grocery shopping on a particular day. And and heaven forbid, you know, you run out of bananas because, well, grocery shopping is on Sunday, not not Thursday. Um, so yeah, it was. I took it. I took it too far in that aspect because I didn't know that, or I didn't really allow myself to just say, "Hey, you know what? We're out of bananas, and it might not be grocery shopping day, but what the hell else do we need? And then we don't need to worry about going on a particular day." Um, little things like that caused me so much stress because I, that, that, that type of flexibility in, in doing things was just nothing we grew up with. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, so as a, as a kid, I felt like the control that I had was (laughs) non-existent. I, the control that I had was making sure that my chores were done at a particular time. So I didn't get hit. Yeah, and and my father's control was. Sure. My father's control was absolute. He he set our schedule. Like we had steak and potatoes Monday night for supper every night for fifteen years, mm. until my mom finally looked at him and said, "I don't like steak," and she stopped making it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which meant so- that. Yeah, dad really, he really struggled with that whole concept mm-hmm. that we have something different Monday night for supper. <laughs> <laughs> so growing up in that environment felt, oh God, uh, claustrophobic. Like any kind of, um, it felt like any kind of different thought was was treason. Mm. You know, and to this day, I still think that I am, I am my dad's single greatest disappointment. He's been a tradesman his entire life. Both of my brothers um, are tradesmen or they're, they're blue-collar workers. I went to university, and I, I, do, I do a white-collar job. Mm-hmm. And my dad doesn't understand what I do. And he, he's, he's offended by the, fa- the simple fact, like, I can't change the oil in my car. And it's like... Yeah, because I don't have the tools, and I'm actually not allowed to do it in the alley here, Dad. You know, it's not the '70s anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm the black sheep in the family um, because I don't work with my hands. Mm. So, I work with, as, I work with my hands. so as a kid, I wish that. Oh gosh, um, I wish that he would have lightened up a little bit. Yeah, it, if he was if he was sitting in front of me right now, what I would want to say is, 
why did you have to hit us? Yeah. Yeah. And the, the father in me wants to say to him, do you have any idea what you did to me? Yeah. Cause what you did to me was you made me scared to have any kind of meaningful relationship with anybody. Mm. Yeah. Acknowledging that feels it hurts. Okay. I mean, he's my dad. I still love him, but damn, it hurts. Yeah. And my relationship with him now is oh, pretty strained. Okay. Because, um, I've tried to have these conversations with him. In fact, when I, I, I had moved out of province to, uh, to go to university and I was really struggling. I literally knew three people in the city I was in. Um, I didn't live near campus. I felt really isolated and I had phoned home and was talking to him. And I said, dad, I need some help. And he said, what do you mean? I said, I want to kill myself and I need some help. Mm. And his response was, well, you're in university. You figure it out. Mm. And that took some counseling to work through that. But uh, the rage that I felt, I think, is the only thing that kept me alive. Mm-hmm. I hated him so much. I didn't talk to my parents for more than a year. I never went home to visit. Mom would phone. She'd leave messages on the answering machine. And I realize I'm dating myself by saying answering machines and not voicemail. Um <laughs> But she was she was in tears. She had no idea what was going on. And it was a few years ago when I taken uh, taken the boys out to visit my parents, and and this was in between marriages, and, and or sorry, it was just after the uh, the little guy was born. And um, my wife was uh, my wife was asleep. Uh, she was having a nap, and. Mom kind of sat me down and said, what, what the heck happened out there? And so I told her. Mm-hmm. And she, her eyes got really big. And she said, he said, what? And I repeated myself. And dad had come around the corner and kind of looked at the two of us. And she looked at him. And it might be the only time that I've seen, I've truly seen her temper. And she looked at him and said, you are so lucky right now and walked away. And he was really confused because he hadn't heard the conversation mm-hmm. and looked at me. And I said, I told mom what you said to me when I was in university. Mm-hmm. I said, and you never told her. I said, so she's not very happy right now. And I'd probably leave her alone because she may kill you. <laughs> and I walked away. Uh, needless to say, the rest of the the rest of the holiday was a little strange because <laughs> uh, we were staying we were staying at my parents' house because you know we didn't have a whole ton of money for holidays and so we didn't want to have a hotel room or anything. But um, I still go visit my parents, and when I do go, I don't go for very long anymore, and I have a hotel room. Mm-hmm. So we'll visit and we'll have meals and we'll chit chat and talk about how the kids are doing and work and all that fun stuff. And then I, uh, then I have a, I have a sanctuary to go and yeah, 
my dad and I have had some some really tough conversations over the last couple of years, and mm-hmm. it's been good for me. Uh, I've felt in a couple of cases some cathartic release, but I'm not sure he really likes the conversations all that much because he's never really had them. Mm-hmm. And he's pushing. Well, I mean, my grandparents never talked. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were. They were this old Italian couple. They fled Italy during the Second World War. You did not talk about how you were feeling or any of that because they were uh, part of my uh, part of my family was hunted by Mussolini's uh, death squads hmm. uh, for, for being part of the being part of the uh, the resistance in Italy. Mm-hmm. They didn't talk. They didn't talk to anybody about anything because they didn't trust anyone. And so dad never really had those conversations. And then when I started to have them with him and it's like, this is the impact. Just so you know, this is kind of what you did to me. Mm-hmm. Um, his general response has been, well, you're here and you're healthy and you've got a good life. So I must've done something right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does that usually leave you feeling? Um, the first couple of times we, I tried having conver- those kinds of conversations with him, I just, I felt sad. I, I really felt sad. But the, the last in a deep conversation we had had, I, I didn't feel that anymore. I felt that, okay, he's, he's almost 70 and he's doing this now. He's doing this now to protect himself. Mm-hmm. That somewhere in there is the recognition of the impact that his behavior had on, on myself and my brothers and that he either doesn't know how to deal with it or doesn't want to. And at this point I can't make him. Mm -hmm. I just, all I'm going to do is express how I feel and how I think. And if he wants to have that conversation, I'm more than open to sit down with him and have those conversations. Mm -hmm. So that hasn't happened yet, like where we get very far, but I'm hoping someday. What do you feel is still unresolved? What do you think that he still doesn't understand about you or about the circumstances in which you grew up? I don't think he really understands the impact that it had. I don't think he understands that because he didn't talk about things, he didn't explain what he was thinking like we had no idea what he ever thought or felt about anything all we saw was anger who knows it could be resentment i mean part of it could be resentment that he was a dad at 19 it's like well dude it's not my fault (laughs) what what about what about your situation do you feel like he doesn't understand i think part of it is is i don't think he understands why i just can't get over it hmm Okay, so let's let's dig into that. So I, I feel like I can't get over it because because I feel like if I if I just get over it, that he's off the hook, hmm. as as macabre as that sounds. Um, that if if I just kind of let everything go without dealing with it with him, is like what he did was okay. And I think part of me is still struggling with this idea that I need him to understand it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, it's you're bringing up something that's very common in situations where there's been 
you know, when there's been abuse in, in childhood or trauma or abandonment or, you know, the, whatever, whatever is on the list of, of hurt and, and pain that someone's experienced. And there comes a challenge, which is how do we heal in a situation where the other person isn't willing to be a part of that process or isn't around anymore to be a part of that process, right? Because some, you know, some people realize that they, you know, they start working through their childhood trauma, but their father or mother, whoever it is, has, has passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, or they, you know, they don't have a willing participant in those conversations. And so how do we find a sense of forgiveness mm-hmm. when when the when we when we are, you know, holding on to the hope that the other person will will come around or that they, you know, they can't hear what we have to say. So, so let's just, just one, just a few more questions. So, Mm -hmm. um, so in order to find closure, what I would want him to know is how much it hurt. Mm -hmm. Just how much, how much his, his anger and, and the physical violence of it, how much how much hurt that caused and how how long it lingered mm-hmm. and and because of that because of that hurt today my life is well my life isn't as fulfilling as it could be and part of that is my issue i need to just i do need to to move past and stand on my own two feet and say, Hey, you know what? Yeah, this is what happened to me in childhood. And this is what I've learned from it. And this is how I'm going to take that learning and go forward. But yeah, it's just, it's, <sighs> yeah, it, it sometimes it's hard to put into words, just how you, how I feel about, how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. But today, my anger is my anger is almost gone. Mm-hmm. There's still little tendrils here and there, but I don't. I'm able to have more meaningful conversations, whether it's with my, uh, whether it's with my second wife, whether it's with my parents. I'm able to have them now, and while they they scare me a little bit. I get the butterflies in my stomach. I'm not, I'm not terrified. There's a much more sense of, okay, this needs to happen. Let's, let's, let's have it. And let's, let's go from there. Okay. And my sense of control today is. It's still there, but it's nowhere near as strong as it was, say when I was in my twenties. Um, I think having kids helped me understand that. And my my older boy is in his early 20s now. And helping him understand, you know, he's trying to start his career. He's having to cold call and to network. And he, it, because of both, all he saw from his mom and I was avoidance. He's He's a master at it already. And so trying to work with him to say, hey, yeah, these are kind of uncomfortable and yeah, they feel really awkward and it's really scary. But if this is your goal, sometimes you got to have those, those awkward and scary conversations. So I feel, I feel better about that. I feel that I'm able to, to 
because I'm not so stuck in being in charge of everything, that I am a little more open to doing things a little differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so good. But where I still feel blocked is, uh, that there are there are still times when I'm having conversations, whether it's with my wife or my kids or somebody at work that there's been a situation come up and damn it, I know the answer and why aren't they listening to me? That's still, that still flares. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm still, that's, that's one piece I'm still really struggling to unpack is I know I'm right, but why aren't you acknowledging that I'm right? That, that, that piece of the control is, it has been a little harder to, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's, been a, that's been a really tough nut to crack that one. Uh-huh, yeah. And I, so, so how that's me carrying on my father's legacy is. Oh, that I still just, I can't give up being in charge hmm. or being right. And it's, it's still a struggle to, to acknowledge that, well, your answer may be right. Not everybody else sees it that way. And if they don't see it that way, are you really right? You're right in your head. But is it actually right with the situation that's happening? And in all honesty, does it need to be right? Mm-hmm. That I've really struggled with over the years is I have an answer. I have a solution, but maybe the maybe the problem doesn't need a solution. Maybe the problem just needs a conversation because that's the actual problem. Hmm. Yeah. Some, sometimes the problem needs an experience, right? And, yeah. you know, I think um, just cause we're, we're getting close on, on time here. Mm-hmm. I just want to say a, a few things about, you know, this episode and this, and this conversation. And, you know, one of the things that stands out, for for me on my side is is this is this theme of control and mm-hmm. it's very very common for people who have had very controlling parents to carry on that legacy of control and to carry mm-hmm. on the legacy of 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 you know having felt dominated having felt like you were put in a position of of powerlessness and wanting to escape that. And you can kind of hear that from the running away, you know, and, and the avoidance of, of, you know, conflicting conversations. And so you can kind of hear this avoidance and, and the moving towards control. And so, you know, one of the, one of the pieces is that even though there's still a part of you that is wanting to control the conversation with your father, uh, being able to have him see and understand your perspective, and you know what he may have done and the impact that he may have done to you the the real shift is going to be in the letting go of him ever 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 understanding that and that mm-hmm. might mean that might mean that that you have to go and and process that in a in an environment where you can you know physically emotionally verbally release it in a way where you can let some of that frustration out because you know, I, I can still hear, you know, behind the, behind the kindness that you exude in this, that there is, uh, that there is a good amount of, of frustration about that situation and that it is still impacting quite a bit of, you know, your, 
quite a bit of, of your relationship specifically. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's an, there's an opportunity for you uh, to, to maybe explore some of that in, in whether that's, you know, whether that's a men's weekend, whether that's a, you know, a, a coaching environment where you can kind of explore that. But I, I think being able to physically release that, I think will be important. How is your anger, how is your anger manifested physically or has it ever manifested physically? With my, with the older boy, um, I would lose my temper and I would yell a lot. Mm. And then as he got older and I got a little older, um, I, um, yeah, I just, it, it started to shift. There was, there was, there was something that happened. And something relatively innocuous. I mean, that's, I think, usually how it goes. And I yelled at him. And I looked and I saw fear in his eyes. Mm -hmm. And that brought me up short and went, oh, my God, I am my dad. I am doing the same thing to him that my dad did to me. And when we had both boys in the house, the, the younger one, I... I um, I yelled at him for something else, and the same thing. Just the the look of look of being scared, and well, the the younger one is the younger one's school age now. Like I said, the older one's out of high school, and it has been years now since I've really since I've lost my temper. Mm-hmm. There have been times I've come close and I've had to look at them and say, hey, hey, boys, you know what? I need a break. I need to go in my room for a minute and I'm going to come back out and then we're going to have a chat about what's going on here. And it's helping the older one. The older one's now starting to talk to me a little bit more about some of his frustrations and how he hasn't appreciated how I've dealt with things. Um, the younger one you know, it will tell me what's been going on at school where he kind of didn't before. So, I mean, I, I feel, I feel glad in some ways that, that they're recognizing that I'm changing Mm -hmm. and that they can have those con, they can say things to me and I won't get mad at them that I'll listen to them and that I won't get mad. Mm -hmm. And for, for me, yeah, for me, I think that's, that's that I have to continue that evolution. And I think that'll be one way that I can kind of finally jettison that last piece of my father's legacy. Yeah. And, you know, I think the the other piece is maybe being able to start to inquire with your father about what his, his upbringing was like and mm-hmm. start to understand maybe not even upbringing, but you know, what was it like for him when, when he first had you, how did his life change? And, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes for it's it's usually the thing that most men want to don't want to do when there is a lot of you know anger or hurt that happened in childhood is to is to seek understanding of of their father's um, experience and their and their and their father's state of mind. You know, when they were in those positions, because it it will bring a certain clarity and light of empathy to the conversation. And you know, it sounds like you've done some some good work to try and move through some of these pieces. Uh, and, and I think that that will, will definitely support you to be able to have that conversation with them and say, you know, how did your life change after you had 
me and and my brothers and uh, how did how did your relationship change? How did your finances change? <laughs> that's usually that's a good access point. Parents love to talk about how uh, how much money they lost after having kids. Um, you know, just just to be able to dig into some of those pieces might open up the dialogue between you mm-hmm. and and give a different different perspective. The other thing that that I think would be interesting is you know to be able to continue down this path of integrating anger. Because what you're talking about is is creating some space and a pause where you can tell your anger is coming up, and you can actually go process it and then come back and have those conversations again. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to do that. Um, but you know, I would encourage you to find someone who sort of specializes in working with with anger because that seems to be an access point. And I I'd be curious to see how much of a correlation there is between unprocessed anger that's coming up for you. And these and these low points that you find yourself in uh, after not having these conversations, because I would imagine that a lot of that anger that has been externally, maybe uh, you know, it, it's been externally push, pushed out before. Now you're changing the pattern, and it sounds like it's trying to be processed internally, and and that might be uh, contributing to it. Because a lot of the times, for for countless countless men, um, held in anger turns into sadness and turns into depression and uh and again you know i'm using that the the d word lightly and loosely um, Mm -hmm. because you know we we've had one call and i don't don't pretend to to know whether or not that's there for you fully um but i think that it's it's maybe something to explore around this this covert idea of, of being able to pay attention to when uh, when those those sort of lulls happen. So to the best of your knowledge, when do you find yourself going into those low points? Yeah, um, usually it is, and, and your analogy of the popcorn kernel is a good one. I've, I'll have this, this epiphany of, okay, now I understand what my wife was saying. And that's usually immediately followed by, why the hell didn't you see it at the time? She told you. Why didn't you see it? And so it's, it's. I guess it's it's anger, but it's directed at myself, like basically calling myself stupid. Mm-hmm. So let's just why pause there. Let's, let's just pause there. So, so as a kid, how I would beat myself up was? Oh, um, I would call myself names i would i would also be incredibly reckless um i grew up in a town that uh that had some very large uh, hills nearby and it was about 500 feet from the top of the hill to the bottom and i used to go back about 30 or 40 yards and take a run at the edge of the hill and jump off and see how many jumps it would take me to get to the bottom. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I I broke my hip. I've broken both ankles. And as a kid, that's, that's what I would do. I I would I would or or I would completely withdraw from the planet and just bury myself in books. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and these are you know these are all common behaviors of trying to get some form of, of attention, right? It's a very, very common thing. It's why, 
you know, a lot of people, a lot of guys, especially love action, these like very dangerous action sports. And, and a lot of them, you can see have grown up in these sort of tumultuous environments and are, and it's kind of a form of, of subconscious or unconscious attention seeking. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious, maybe just, just to go in, into one other direction before we wrap up here. Mm-hmm. Um, so how I would shame myself after I got in trouble with my father was, Oh, um, I would literally withdraw from the world. Hmm. If I went to school, you'd be hard pressed to, to find anybody that would acknowledge that I said anything in class. Um, I used to get into fights at school for no real reason. And yeah, I just, yeah, I, uh, and that's, and in all honesty, when I was a child, that's when I, when I felt those feelings the most, that's when I would run away. Yeah. Cause I didn't know how to deal with it. Yeah. And you can, you know, there's, it sounds like you as a kid were, were trying to protect yourself a lot, you know, trying to protect yourself from his anger, trying to protect yourself from getting it wrong and getting in trouble, trying to protect yourself from, from punishment. What else did you feel like you had to protect yourself from as a kid? Um, there were times and my, (laughs) when I was really small, my grandparents used to look after me and because they had, they had fled, they had fled Northern Italy. Uh, obviously English wasn't their first language. And so there weren't daycares back home in the, in the early and mid seventies. And so when my grandparents used to put me down for a nap, a lot of the times I wouldn't nap. I would just sit there and listen to them talk mm. uh, because the language sounded beautiful. And I mean, I hardly, I had very little context as to what they were talking about. But I went to school speaking a different, I had a little bit of an accent because I listened to them talk and would try to emulate how they talk. And I think part of that shame as well is that I just, I wasn't like everybody else. I would get, I would get picked on or teased and my temper would erupt. And I remember getting kicked out of school for a few days in grade three because I beat up a kid in grade six who was easily twice my height. Mm -hmm. Um, um, But he teased me about, I I said something funny and he teased me about it. And I literally jumped off one of the pieces of playground equipment on top of him. And I remember punching the back of his head and driving his face into the gravel and just feeling this, this rage that I, uh, you know, that I was just that different that they, they kept picking on me. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, so what did that, what did that teach you? Just, just, just lastly. Well, I think what it taught me, what a lot of that stuff taught me, whether it was at home or at school was that nobody talked about anything. If I got into trouble at school for doing, obviously doing something like that, you're going to get in trouble for it. And it wasn't, it was never about what was said. Mm-hmm. It was never about, okay, well, person A said this, and this is how I felt, and this is why I did what I did. 
It was, you did this, you're getting the strap and you're going home. I went to a Catholic school and so uh, corporal punishment was the, was the thing back then. Uh, getting the straps, getting the lashes on the hand or what have you. But all of that growing up, whether it was at home or at school, was very much, if you did something wrong, you were going to get hit. You were going to be punished and you were going to be punished severely. And if you tried to talk back, the punishment was was greater. So it was sit down, shut up, do your work. Mm -hmm. And if you do it wrong, you're going to get punished. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's multiple, multiple examples here of, of being in an environment where your behavior, and this is, this is really important, right? This is the sort of core of a lot of the challenges that you're talking about within your relationship, um, you know, parenting. And, and I would imagine just to look, even the, even the self-talk to an extended degree. So a lot of your behavior as a kid was developed and designed around the core concept of protection and that mm -hmm. that protection was of self-protection and so a lot of the challenges that you're facing now and, and maybe i've been facing for a couple of years really revolve around this idea of how do i protect myself but still let other people in when predominantly other people haven't been safe and yeah. and other people haven't known my pain and I haven't let other people see when I'm feeling alone or hurting or, uh, you know, I can feel this part of me that wants to protect myself against those other people. And the real work, my friend, is, is in noticing when you want to turn away from someone, specifically a partnership, right? This is so common. This is so common, in, especially in heterosexual relationships. But this is so common with men where they have been burned in the past. They've been hurt repeatedly and they've been taught that they need to protect themselves at all costs because some outside or external force is not safe and it's going to hurt them. Mm -hmm. And you can hear how the little boy in you, when there is a situation that is unsafe in some way, immediately takes control of the steering wheel and says, I'm going to shut down, I'm going to wall up, I'm going to walk away or leave or whatever, and has a very, um, in attachment theory, this is called avoidance, uh, avoidant attachment. And, and he takes over to, quote unquote, protect you from getting hurt. And mm -hmm. so, so the work that needs to be done on your side is, is to become more and more familiar with this part of you that wants to shut down, that wants to turn away out of a perceived mechanism of protection and to start to turn towards these uncomfortable conversations, uncomfortable situations, and to start to speak more and more what it is that you want, what it is that you need, but also what it is that you're experiencing, especially when that experience is, I feel hurt or I feel you know worried about getting hurt. And so I can feel myself shutting down because I, I, I'm trying to protect myself. Mm-hmm. And to actually label that, especially with close people in your life, specifically within intimate partnerships, to be able to say, hey, I'm shutting down right now because I, or, hey, I can feel myself wanting to close off out of protection or, hey, I feel myself hurting and because of that, I feel like I'm shutting down. All of, all of that is a huge step because that is you slowly turning towards 
being able to stay open, have an open heart, and being able to communicate with a partner around what's actually happening. Because you know, relationships fall apart obviously when there's when there's you know bad communication, but also when there's when there is one party or both parties who are conditioned to turn away from each other as a means of protection. And mm-hmm. Really great love, intimacy, sex, relationships comes when when we are both able to individually see when we want to wall up or turn away or shut down or whatever it is out of a form of protection. And we choose we choose the opposite of that instead. And we choose to turn towards uh, turn towards repairing, which requires conversations and openness about what we're experiencing. Does that land mm-hmm. on your side? Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any questions for me before we wrap up? No, no. I think, uh, I think we covered everything that, uh, that I had hoped to, and I've got some, uh, I've got some things, some new things to think about and, and, uh, ways to, um, ways to start having, having other conversations that, uh, hopefully don't, uh, hopefully don't, uh, trigger the six-year-old to wake up. Yeah, and I would, and I, you know, just as a closing note, I would encourage you to go back and listen to this podcast again, and just hear some of the pieces that stood out to you. Like that can be something that's that's very informative, and you can kind of see and hear yourself in that. But also, I would encourage you to to in some way start to communicate a little bit more with that younger self. I think you said, you know, six year old. Is that how old you feel when when you can sort of sense your inner child taking over? Yeah, six or seven. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I think it'll be important what I would encourage you to do in your journaling, uh, say you, you had mentioned journaling before, uh, but maybe not being, not being a, a good journaler, which I don't think that there, there is a good or bad journaling, you know, it's just, it's, it's all, it's all helpful. Um, mm-hmm. but, but to, to write a letter to your younger self, acknowledging all of the challenges, all of the, the, the hurt, and the separation and the isolation that he must have gone through and acknowledge those things and be able to say, and I've got you now and, 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 and you're okay because I'm supporting us and just start to build that relationship with him where he, you know, where your younger version knows that it's, that it's okay to, to calm and surrender a little bit and to allow you to lead in those really challenging moments or allow you to lead a little bit more uh, than than you already are, and and to and to let you create the direction. So if you if you want any help on that, uh, let me know. I can follow up with you in a couple of days to see how that exercise is going. But I think that will that will definitely support you in that process. And I would imagine that that will continue to support you uh, with your sons as well in in the mm-hmm. conversations that you're having with them. Yeah, no, that sounds um, no, that sounds like a really good idea. Thank you. Um, so thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate your on- honesty and your candidness and your ability to show up in this conversation. So thank you. No, thank you. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to me. Yeah. So for everyone that's out there listening, uh, don't forget to leave us a rating and review. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, man it forward, share it with a few people that you think would, would enjoy listening to it. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Join me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual. Mm-hmm.